At LensCrafters, we value expertly tailored eye care, provide state-of-the-art eye exams, offer a wide assortment of designer brands and high-quality lenses, because everything we do at LensCrafters is for every site that makes your life special. We offer 50% off lenses with frame purchase, shop in-store and online. Book your annual eye exam now on LensCrafters.com. LensCrafters, because sight. Eye exams are available at the Independent Doctor of Optometry at or next to LensCrafters. Doctors in some states are employed by LensCrafters. Offer valid to April 2nd, 2023. See associate for details. This is Tema Frank, author of People Shock, The Path to Profits When Customers Rule. And you're listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer in 2016. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, we're joined by Tema Frank, and we're going to talk about her new book, People Shock, The Path to Profits When Customers Rule. Tema Frank has worked in marketing and customer experience-related fields for over three decades. In 2001, she founded Web Mystery Shoppers, the world's first company to assess multi-channel customer service. Using social media techniques in the days before social media existed, she built a database of 75,000 mystery shoppers worldwide. She has consulted to small to medium-sized businesses and Fortune 500 companies in the U.S. and Canada, given highly rated talks and courses on customer experience, and hosts the weekly Frank Reactions podcast on customer experience. Tema, congratulations on People Shock, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Oh, well, thanks for coming on and uh, loved your book. And your book, you, you said this book is about how you can leverage the people factor to survive and thrive in our increasingly automated era. And you said this book is about three things, survival, profits, and satisfaction. Tema, explain what people shock means. Okay, so people shock is basically a condition where what's happening is companies are feeling more and more pressure to improve customer experience and the all the people aspects of their business because increasingly that's the only way you have a hope of competing sustainably. So thanks to what I call the Amazon effect, competition from companies like Amazon, it's no longer really possible to compete for long on price. You're not going to be able to beat them on variety of product. So fundamentally, the only successful way you can compete for more than a very brief period of time is by understanding the human elements, both of your staff, of your customers, but also of a whole range of other people, including your suppliers and distributors and funders. So the book is really about how you need to focus on those people elements. And so if you get it right, people shock will help you thrive. If you get it wrong, people shock will kill you. But Tema, the people part is hard. Exactly. <laughs> and that's why that's why it can be a competitive advantage if you yes. get it right. <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned that customer experience has always been, you know, important. Uh, but what is making it even more important now than 
than in the past. Can you say more about that? Why is it suddenly burst on the scene? It's like, it's like this customer experience. I mean, all the, the books I get to read and uh, things I'm following, it's really, it's really finally, to you, I guess, <laughs> bubbling up <laughs> and people are starting to understand the importance. Yeah, and I think the reason is the balance of power has really shifted from sellers to customers. So it used to be that sellers controlled most of the information. So if you needed to buy something, first you had to hunt to figure out where to buy it, and there wasn't a ton of competition for places to buy it. And often it was difficult to get pricing information. It was difficult to get information about whether this particular vendor offered a good quality product or service. Whereas now, thanks to the internet and thanks to social media, it's become so easy for customers or potential customers to get that information that you really have to get this stuff right because mm-hmm. the mediocre just can't survive anymore. They'll be blasted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like to think of it as um, there was like a hundred years war between the marketers and the consumers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You've heard of the 30 years war and, and the consumers have won <laughs> and they're, well, they're never getting know, back power. I would say, yes, the consumers are winning. I don't know if I'd say have won because even though 89% of companies are saying, yes, we accept that customer experience is the new battleground, the fact is very few of them are actually doing it well. Yes, absolutely. And you uh, <laughs> you mentioned that. Uh, and I've seen some others where the, some other studies, I think it might have been a Bain one, where they were talking about, you know, like 80% of companies think they're given a great experience and it turns out like only 10% are. And you, yep. you, you referenced that in, in another one. But before the listener, you know, I, I can just imagine there's a few listeners sitting there, you know, maybe with their arms crossed, hopefully not while they're driving. But they're <laughs> thinking, you know, I'm, oh uh, yeah, come on. This sounds like squishy branding, kumbaya stuff. Uh, I am a dollars and cents guy. I, I've got to read this one part of the book that... I know it's familiar to you, but it just, it blew my mind. And it, okay. it had to do with, isn't it interesting when you find out from different people the, the parts of the book that resonate? Yeah, this, I love it. This had to do with money and lots of math, okay? So I'm just okay. going to read the part is under the subhead that's uh, better stock market returns. And it said, researchers at the University of Michigan found that if, in the year 2000, you had invested $100 in the overall U.S. stock market as represented by the S&P 500 index. By 2012, you'd be down to $93, or a loss of 7%. But if you had invested in a fund made up of companies that scored well on the American Customer Satisfaction Index over that same time, your $100 would have turned into $490, and an increase of 390%. And they saw similar results in the UK. And then you go on to say, in a similar vein, <laughs> Forrester Research and Watermark Consulting examined the stock performance of the top 10 and bottom 10 publicly traded companies in Forrester's Customer Experience Index. They found that the shares of the top 10 increased 43% between 2007 and 2012. Companies that were not focused on customer experience saw a, wait for it, decrease in share value of almost 34%. I'm laughing to keep from crying, Tema. (laughs) Well, and what amazes me, I'm so glad you picked up on that, because what still boggles my mind is how many CEOs say, well, you know, this, this, yeah, we get that it's nice stuff to have, but really we got to focus on hard dollars and cents. (laughs) Well, the dollars and cents is there. Take a look. 
So I'm glad you picked that up. Yeah, don't take my word for it. It's it's there, but it's yeah. like it's a cop out. They'll say, "Well, I want to see the dollars and cents." Okay, here they are. Well, yeah. I don't know. I'm not a people person, but you know, <laughs> despite this growing body of research showing that, as you said, positive uh, employee engagement and high levels of customer satisfaction are strongly correlated with long-term profitability, investors are still not rewarding the investment required to improve customer experience. Why? Why is that? Uh, well, and clearly from the data, some investors do. But I think it's because investors, we like to think that stock markets are rational. And the fact is they aren't. And so, and, and I discuss in the book, there's some research that shows that there's sort of a vicious circle that can happen. So if the media perceives that investors don't think something is important, the media will report that that thing is not important. Then more investors see the media saying that investors don't think it's important, so it becomes less and less important. Mm -hmm. Conversely, if we can reverse that so that investors start saying clearly, yes, this is important and we think it should be invested in, if enough of them start saying that, that the message permeates into the media, then it can start a really positive cycle of improving this. But right now, there are just so many investors that are focused purely on short term. And to make significant changes in customer experience can't be done in one quarter. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a some things can be improved quickly, but I, I wouldn't count on it. It seems like it's going to take more than 90 days. Are, are there examples of companies, I guess, that have, well, you talk about Dell at the end of the book where you just bought it back, yeah. bought the shares back, and that's not an option for most. But are there companies where they've said, you know what, I understand that, but we're going to do this right for the long term? Well, there are some. I mean, for several have said it, very few have actually made the necessary commitment to get there. For instance, Comcast has tried, but I don't think they're there yet. Yeah, make up uh, your own Comcast customer support joke. Exactly. But companies like Campbell's Soup, which are, was, well, I guess Campbell's, I don't know if the soup is part of the brand name, probably not. But they were in a desperate, desperate position. And then they got a new CEO who recognized that improving both customer and employee experience was crucial. And he was determined to do that. So yes, because the company was in bad shape, he had to do some cost cutting and things at the beginning, but he really shifted the emphasis. So he even started doing things like he personally would write, I think it was 10 or 20 notes a day to individual employees of that company, just thanking them for their work. Mm. And mm. he said years later, he would tour all over the world and see these notes stuck up on their bulletin boards. It made such a difference. And if you motivate your employees, they're going to give better service to your customers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I worked at a smaller uh, agency once and the, one of the three owners, and we were all in the same office. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But he would write a handwritten note to employees on their anniversaries <laughs> and and people would keep every single one of them and put them up on their walls. And would just yeah. say something like, we really appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it makes me wonder if there are going to be more privately held companies that get this and do this and succeed because they're not under the, you know, the, the quarterly uh, you know, guillotine there. And then others might start to catch on to that. I think that's what's happening. And so you see more and more companies that are started in recent years focusing on customer experience as their competitive differentiator. Mm -hmm. So what'll be interesting to see from my perspective is 
as those companies grow and be, and ultimately go public, what happens? Mm. And, you know, I, I'm thinking about it right now with Amazon, which is a wonderful company and in many ways offers wonderful customer experience. But just in trying to get my books listed for sale on there, there have been nonstop problems. And it takes a day or two to get a reply from them. And then they pass it on to somebody else. And something that should have been really quick and easy from a company that's known as one of the best in the world is taking weeks. Like, I don't have it up for pre-sale yet, and it should be. It oh. hopefully will be in about two days. But um, yeah, by know, the time this broadcasts, it should be up for sale. Absolutely. And uh, it's funny. I mean, they do certain things. They do a lot of things extremely well. But there's yeah. some things where it just completely falls off. And I just to give an example, I for each author that I interview, including Tema Frank, I do a video review of the book, and I put it on Amazon. And it's great, you know? But there's an author, Joseph Jaffe, wrote a fantastic book, uh, Zero is the New Paid Media. And I we put the, the video on there just in time for the uh, podcast to publish. And Amazon started saying, we're not going to publish that. And I hmm. said, mm, yeah, we've done about 50 of these things. Uh, <laughs> well, and they said they started giving me this, this kind of gibberish and back talk and saying, well, your profile is too much like his. And I said, well, what in the world does that mean? And they said, well, we're not yeah. going to tell you what our algorithm is. And it went back and forth. And they started saying things like, we're not going to, we may not re- respond to any more of your emails. <laughs> oh, my. And it started to remind me of United Breaks Guitars. And then right. I was talking to another author, Bob Hoffman, about his book, Marketers Are From Mars, Consumers Are From New Jersey. He was talking about how Amazon dropped his book right, uh, they, they stopped uh, selling it right after it launched. Yeah. And, so be ready for this time because somebody at a conference in the UK bought 500 copies to give out to all the attendees, and mm-hmm. Amazon thought that he had bought 500 and was trying to game the system. Ooh, I got to let them know because I've also got people who are buying copies for conferences. Yes, so. <laughs> we've talked about that. So be on the yeah. lookout. Yeah. So let's get into what I thought of as really the, the backbone of the book, which was this 3P formula, profit formula. Can you can you explain that and, and walk us through that? Absolutely. So the 3P profit formula basically says that in order to de- deliver outstanding customer experiences, you need to combine these three elements, the promise, the people, and the process. You need to look at all of those. So first, the promise. You need to have a clear understanding of what it is that we offer, why are we offering it, And what's inspirational about it for our staff and for our customers? And, you know, you may think that it's hard to be inspirational about everything that's sold. There are plenty of products that are kind of bland and boring. But even something like janitorial services, there's a company called Jancoa Janitorial Services. And they decided what was going to make them inspirational was they realized that a lot of their employees were from really poor, rough neighborhoods and didn't even have dreams, let alone feel they could achieve them. And they, they might have been from other countries originally. Oh, most of them. Yeah, uh-huh. sure. And so they decided that their goal was to help these people achieve dreams. And so they started working one-on-one with employees to help them get the skills they needed, the expertise they needed, so that ultimately they would, in fact, leave and no longer be janitors. But the reality is, as, as Mary Miller, the CEO, said to me, it's a, nobody grows up wanting to be a janitor. So by helping these people achieve their goals, 
it meant they worked a lot better while they were employees there because mm-hmm. they felt the company cared about them, so they cared. And it meant that actually their turnover rates lowered mm-hmm. because people felt more committed. So even though, yes, they were helping people move out, it was a business that has a ridiculously high turnover rate regardless. Mm-hmm. So so any type of business, you can find a way to make that promise inspirational. So that's the first P. The second P is the people. And in the book, I, I split that into two categories. They're the internal people, which is your staff. And then there are a bunch of external people that often get forgotten. So those would be not just customers and prospects, but as I mentioned earlier, suppliers, distributors, funders, people who are buying your shares, the media, there are all these other, this whole other ecosystem of people that influence whether or not your company will succeed. Mm -hmm. And then the third part, and this is really the one that I think got me started on the book in the first place. And I originally thought it was going to be purely aimed at marketers. And I finally realized it has to cross silos. So it goes a bit beyond that. But that third one is, is process. And a lot, a lot, a lot of CEOs say, yeah, we're all about the customer. We're going to give great customer service and great customer experiences. But then they don't think about, well, what does that mean we have to change internally so we can actually do that? Yeah, how do you engineer that? How, how are you going to do that, boss? <laughs> exactly. And it's amazing how many don't think that through. Mm-hmm. So I was hoping with that formula of promise people and process that I could help organizations see that these things are all essential ingredients if you want to succeed in an era of people shock. Mm-hmm. And while it's just three areas, that's most of the book. I mean, there's quite a bit. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you, you, you go into great depth on on each of those. Now, let's go back to promise for a minute. Now, that means a promise, if I'm not mistaken, you're making that to your customers and to your people. It's uh, Is it like a, a rallying cry or, or, or what you're, what you're all about? To a certain extent. I mean, the promise really ultimately is your brand. So it's what are we about how do we want to be perceived? And what are the values and core principles that underlie what we do? Mm-hmm. And part of the reason that's so important is one of the things that I advocate in the book is allowing staff who are on the front lines or closer to the ultimate customers have more autonomy. Well, the way the only way you can really do that and delegate comfortably is if you've got guiding principles that people understand and have been trained in. So that when they have to make decisions without you looking over their shoulder, they know what are the right decisions to make. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At one point in the book, you said something, again, that just jumped off the page at me. You said, in our increasingly customer-centric era, you need to start by thinking about what problem you're solving for your customers. What benefit does your offer provide that no one else is currently promoting? And that I get the sense that a lot of companies just gloss over or skip over that. Can you explain more about the real problem? In other words, it's not widgets. It's how does that affect all that below the uh, surface of the iceberg? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that's sort of uh, in some ways classic marketing, I guess. And my background is as a marketer. Mm -hmm. So the classic example that I use in the book is Kodak, which went bankrupt after having been such a dominant force in the world, they saw that their product was film. What they didn't appreciate adequately 
was that really they were in the business of creating memories and helping people preserve memories. If they had understood that, then when one of their employees back in the 1970s came up with the concept for digital cameras and we figured should, we out- We should pause for a second. Kodak came up with the digital camera. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kodak. And what did and they do to that employee? They told him to shut up. They told him, <laughs> keep it quiet because that's going to kill our film business. So oh. they silenced him. Yeah. And yeah. so that's a classic example of where they they misunderstood what is the problem they're solving for their customers. If they looked at it from that lens, they could have been a total dominant force today. That seems to be one of the hardest things for companies to do. And, you know, there's a famous article in the Harvard Business Review from around the ni- 1960, Theodore Levitt, Marketing Myopia. And he talks mm-hmm. about the exact same thing where, you know, I don't know, 100 years ago, the railroads thought they were in the railroad business, you know, laying yeah. track and, you know, building bridges and all that sort of thing. But what they really were is they were in the business of getting stuff and people from one place to the other. And they continued in that vein and interstate trucking, shipping, air cargo. Nope, that's not it. That's not railroads. Doesn't apply to us. Mm-hmm. And I think I like the Kodak example because it's, well, for people of a certain age, you know, it, it was a big part. In fact, I used to work at the agency that had the Kodak account. And I, oh, yeah. I, I see this and I'm just, uh, it's, it's, it's just amazing. Um, and I think uh, just to add some weirdness to your story, they, uh, they sold, they, they, they were, were finally able to make some money by selling the patent for the digital camera as they were going out of business or something like that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bit late. Yeah. <laughs> a day late and a dollar short. Yeah, exactly. So you, you say in the book that the four Ps, you know, the classic four Ps of marketing, you know, mm-hmm. product, price, place, and promotion. Mm-hmm. Each of those used to be handled in a separate box. Very true you know, maybe by separate departments. Why is that a broken system? Why is that no longer possible? It's no longer possible because in order to develop, to deliver a unified, consistent, happy experience, they need to collaborate. Mm -hmm. They need to be looking at, you need to be looking at everything from the customer's perspective. And that will touch all the different departments within your organization. So if you are selling a product to a customer, it's important that the message get to the customer in the right way at the right time, but that it be supported by the people who are in the production line, making sure they're building according to spec. It's got to be supported by the people in finance. All these different areas have an impact on that ultimate ultimate customer experience. Mm -hmm. And I think when you've got each of those four Ps focused in their own little world, they stop seeing it from the customer's perspective. They see it from their perspective. How can we be as efficient as possible at doing X? Well, the way they can be as efficient as possible at doing X may hurt customers down the road because it's convenient for the company, but not for the customer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you need to take a more, I hate the word holistic, but <laughs> you do need to take a more holistic view of the situation. Yes, yes. And I and, and to start to get there, um, you talk about companies need to organize, stop organizing <laughs> around product segments and start organizing around 
customer segments. I, again, it's like we're explaining that the uh, Earth rotates around the sun instead of the sun <laughs> around the Earth here. But what what do you mean uh, to organize around customer segments rather than product segments? And have you have you seen companies be able to do that successfully? Well, to start with credit where credit is due, that idea I got from Dr. Niraj Dawar, who's a professor, I think at Western University. And he wrote a book called Tilt. And he was making that argument that we've got to start organizing around customer segments. So instead of focusing on product X, you focus on who are the types of people that would value this particular attribute. Mm -hmm. So one of the great examples is cars. If you think about Volvo, what comes to mind? Safety. Exactly. Well, before Volvo made that a product attribute, nobody marketed cars on the basis of safety. Nobody even thought that was relevant. Mm -hmm. So Volvo said, hmm, here's a place where we could capture a market share. For a certain percentage of the public, having a really safe car is important. So we're going to make our target market those people. So for instance, parents of young children other people who really, really obsessed about safety. And so they've been able to totally dominate and build a super strong brand based on that. Mm -hmm. and, and then that comes back to one of the other points that I've made in the book, which is the importance of consistency in your in how you behave, that it be consistent with your promise. So, you know, contrast Volvo with what happened this past year with Volkswagen. Yes where they had a strong brand and they've totally destroyed it. They've mm -hmm. destroyed their credibility because they lied. They lied to people about a mission, about something that was an emotional value. People were paying extra to buy these cars because they wanted to be good citizens and not have excess carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. And they were being lied to by the brand. Mm -hmm. And you said uh, an interesting word there. You have to have consistency, uh, not in what you say, yeah, you do, but more important is consistency in your corporate behavior. Absolutely. In your corporate behavior, every element of it, and in how you treat your customers. So we hear, you know, a lot of books talk about let's wow our customers. And yeah, it's great to do that occasionally. It is important to do that occasionally. But even more important is that you be consistently good. You don't have to be consistently overachieving. You just have to be consistently delivering what you promise, <laughs> when you promise it, how you said it would be. I don't know, Tim. That just sounds way too easy. You actually have to deliver <laughs> what you say you're going to do. And, you know, it's funny because um, a lot of companies understand that, but they get so distracted thinking, no, we got to wow them. No, first, let's make sure we're, <laughs> yep. we're just doing what we're promising. Then we can go to the next stage. And a lot of companies don't even, they don't even measure. They don't even look to see if they are being consistent. So they don't know that they're messing up there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This book is about, in, in certain ways, Tema, this, you could classify this as obviously a marketing customer experience book, but it's also a, it's also a horror book. It's, it's, <laughs> it's scary, and here's why. Because what you talk about here has to do with the C word, and I'm talking about change. It's mm. just terrifying. And there's a whole, I don't know, pretty good section on CEOs. <laughs> Why this, you know, it, it, it starts with the top, and, but you go into to greater depth about that. So in the book, you, you mentioned that, you know, you talk about getting buy-in before you, you know, go off on some new direction. And you said something that I'd like you to explain. You said what's more important before you get financial buy-in, 
you need to get emotional buy-in. Can you explain that? Yeah, and that was a lesson I learned the hard way, I think. When I started selling my services with my first company with Web Mystery Shoppers, and Web Mystery Shoppers essentially was a usability testing company. But I started selling this service in 2001 when most companies were just, they figured they were doing well if they had a website up. They didn't really think it was important that it be usable and user-friendly. And to me, the logic of that was just self-evident. So I would go into these sales presentations and I would give them all the logical arguments about why it made sense for them to have a usable website. And I wasn't getting very far. Mm -hmm. And what I finally realized, a little too late, I think, was that it was far more powerful if I could go in and say, let me show you what your customers experience when they try to use your website. Mm -hmm. And better still, if I could actually show them customers using their website. So what we call in customer experience, we call it the voice of the customer. If they if they see that, they're shocked and horrified and they think, oh, my God, we got to change this. We got to do something about this. It Then they'll use the financial stuff and the data to back up what they've now accepted at a gut level. Yes, people are emotional and they make yep. reason, decisions that based on emotions and then they'll use rational data to back it up. Exactly. And so you got to learn to present your case that way. You know, back when I did a whole lot, I was much more in the advertising world. I can remember at various times we would do like man on the street interviews, you know, asking, just stopping people, asking them like awareness questions. Mm -hmm. And maybe they'd start talking about one brand or another. And, you know, that is the time when we would show it to clients. And I think that's the quietest our clients ever got because they would be <laughs> sitting there with their, their jaws on the table thinking, oh my God. And it, and it goes back to my sense that companies just don't know as much about their customers as they think they do. Nowhere near as much as they think they do. And interestingly, I think a lot of companies are afraid to find out. They're afraid to ask. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, going to a customer that's, you know, you want to you start doing, uh, you know, surveys or something, find out how we're doing. It's like, I think we're doing okay. They'll complain if there's a problem. <laughs> exactly. And you hear that. You hear a lot of people who believe that. Yeah. They, they must be happy because they're not complaining. No, that just means... They haven't yet been offered an alternative that is worth the risk of changing to. Yeah, yeah. Can you explain the the process bridge concept and and also the customer journey mapping? Those were very helpful paradigm and also a, an exercise that I'm I'm going to be borrowing liberally if you don't mind. Excellent. <laughs> okay, so the process bridge. Basically, what I'm saying is, you've got your employees and you've got them to the point where they want to deliver good service. And in fact, the reality is almost all employees start off wanting to be great employees. They want to make your company shine. If they stop, it's because you've really abused them for a long time. <laughs> so they're wanting to be helpful. And then you've got your customers on the other end of that bridge who want to be happy with what you offer. But in order for the employees to deliver what the customer wants, you need a bridge of solid processes that make it possible for them to do so. So, for instance, when you call a company and you've got a problem and the person on the phone says, well, those are the rules, uh, there's nothing I can do about that, your process isn't enabling the customer to cross that bridge. Your process is putting a barrier there between you and the customer. Whereas a good process bridge will be built on the values of the organization and some core principles. 
and then solid processes that make things happen smoothly. So one of the things that I propose in the book is going through mapping type processes, often called customer journey mapping, Mm -hmm. where you literally are saying, okay, let's look at everything from a customer's perspective. This is the goal the customer is trying to accomplish. What happens? And and I go through in the book, there's a couple of examples where every step of the way, here's what we're doing internally. Here's what the customer is experiencing. Where are the pain points? Where are the pain points for the customer? Where are the pain points for the staff? Once you know all that, then you can start looking at your processes and saying, okay, what could we change to eliminate some of those pain points? Mm -hmm. So mm-hmm. it's it's a useful way of putting the two sides together. So you're not just, and you know, I mentioned this earlier, you're not just looking at how can we be more efficient internally, although the wonderful side effect that usually comes out of this is things that make life better for the customers usually do end up making things much more efficient and effective internally. <laughs> what a coincidence. So, well, and what's so exciting about it, and this comes back to what you mentioned at the beginning about the ROI, is this is one of the few areas where by investing more for your customers, you could actually be saving yourself money as well as getting more sales. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a point I've been making. I, I live in Alberta where we have a very oil-dependent economy. And so a lot of companies are suffering right now and they're afraid to spend money on anything. Yeah. And I'm trying to make the point to them that if you take advantage of this slower time to rethink your processes, you may well be able to improve your revenues even in a downturn and cut your costs. And when the economy, when their economy comes back, it's going to be, be even better. Absolutely. And there's research that's looked at that. The companies that were strategic during downtimes end up doing way better once things come up, come back. Yeah. And from back in my ad days, I remember some studies that had shown that companies just from, just from, again, you know, just advertising, mm-hmm. but during a downturn, those that were able to continue to continue to advertise mm-hmm. during a downturn, they got a much bigger share of, of voice. Yep. And then when it, the, when their economy, their vertical came back, there were usually always a positive effect. I mean, it's like, I, I think it was like Wrigley's chewing gum, even during World War II. Mm-hmm. You couldn't get any, but they continued to advertise. Wow. <laughs> Build up pent-up demand. That's right. That's right. Well, let's talk in our remaining time about measurement and metrics. And you, you say that you know many companies are becoming metric-centered instead of customer centric. In other words, <laughs> they're more obsessed with measuring than they are with the customer. And you know, why is that? Why is that such a bad thing? And what can companies do to deal with it? Well, I think you really have to focus on what are the important metrics and, and what really tells you what you need to know to improve. So one of the things that concerns me a little is in the customer experience area, almost everybody now focuses solely on the net promoter score yes. because it's a nice, easy thing to measure. So for people who aren't familiar with it, basically on a 10-point scale, anyone who says when they're asked the question, would you recommend us to a friend, anyone who scores 9 or 10 is considered a promoter. I think anything 6 and under is considered a detractor and 7 and 8 are considered neutral. So you take your promoters, you subtract your detractors, and that gives you your net promoter score. Mm -hmm. And Fred Reichheld from Bain & Company came up with this measure 10 or 15 years ago. And it was really exciting because his data seemed to show that this was 
the only measure you needed that would tell you ultimately, will this company be profitable or not? And wasn't that the name of one of the books written about it? Something yes. like that? The, the only the only question or the only metric you need or something. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Since that time, he's backtracked a little and others have criticized and shown that, in fact, that number is not as powerful as he thought. It's still a useful metric. But for instance, it doesn't tell you why they feel what they do. So if you don't know why, you can't be improving. It also doesn't deal with things like customer churn rates. So you may have gained uh, a bunch of promoters, but if you've also lost a bunch of people, if you're churning through customers really quickly, even if you still have a good net promoter score, you're spending way too much money on customer attraction. Mm -hmm rather than retention. And it's a lot cheaper to retain customers than to go out and get new ones. <laughs> so you have to dig a little bit deeper about what are we trying to learn from these metrics? Yes. And and try to really focus on the the metrics that will help you get better rather than on what Lynn Hunsaker calls the the lagging indicators. Right. Focus on the leading indicators. So it's like when you're trying to lose weight, instead of focusing on the fact that you want to weigh X pounds by X date, focus on, okay, this week I am going to cut out eating sweets or something that will ultimately lead you to that goal. Mm -hmm. And those are much more useful metrics to be focusing on. Mm -hmm. And sometimes companies just get so carried away arguing about what are the most important metrics that they lose focus on what are the ones and how do we implement things that will get us there. Yes, yes. And there were... There, there was a part where, at that section of the book where you're talking about this phenomenon of you get some help on the phone and the people say, okay, now you're going to get a survey and I'd really appreciate a number 10 score. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, <laughs> you, you dissected that one yeah. and explained you know, what, what the problem is with that. So, Oh, for sure. I mean, it, first of all, it puts your employees in a really awkward spot. And I've had this over and over again, particularly at car dealerships and big retail chains, um, where as you're checking out, the employee says, you know, you're going to get a survey and I'm going to get punished if I don't get a 10. (laughs) So um, how does that make me feel? Well, as a customer, it makes me feel really bad. Yeah. So even if the service was not great, unless it was really outrageously bad, I'm going to feel pressure to give them a 10 because I don't want that poor person at the counter to get punished. Yeah. So it means the company's getting false data and the customer is put in an awkward spot. Mm-hmm. So, and, and there's no real way for you to be able to police that, honestly. It's going to happen. Also, it doesn't deal with people like me who, unless for me, a 10 means this person went over the top. This was the wow experience. To me, that's a 10. If the if the experience was okay, I was happy, satisfied, got what I needed, it was relatively quick, I might give it an eight or a nine. And yet a lot of companies literally do punish them if they don't get 10. Right. And and I think, uh, as I, if I remember correctly from reading the book, Tema Frank is not a big 10 giver. No. <laughs> as I said, it's got to be a real wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tema, I, please don't laugh at me, but I, 23 hours from now, you're going to receive an email and it's going to ask you, I'm not joking, on a, scale of, <laughs> on a scale of zero to 10, how likely would you be to recommend this being on this podcast to another author? So, Oops. <laughs> well, but you know what? I'm just trying to find out if there's something. Well, there's actually a, a one or two other questions afterwards, and you don't have to answer it. <laughs> but I'm trying to find out, is there something that I'm, I'm clearly screwing up or that I maybe I could do better 
you know, because I, I want the guests to have a, a good experience. I don't know. And there's just, nothing wrong with that. I mean, asking for feedback is good. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have a problem with asking for feedback. Yeah. But but you're not going to fire yourself if I give you a nine. I might beat myself up a little. Well, no, you I'm, might. I'm just kidding. And, Actually, and you at know, the moment, I am leaning towards a 10 because oh. I love your podcast. <laughs> well, now I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I have to share with you, it says something like, uh, you know, if there was one thing that I could do that might, you know, Im- improve your experience or, or the show, what would it be? And I'm not kidding. The last author, who was a really funny guy, he said, more nudity. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it's a good so, thing it's audio. <laughs> uh, just, just so you know, I'm fully clothed. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Tema, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I would hope that it would be that they understand the importance of paying attention to the three P's of promise, people, and process, and understand that they are all related and they're all essential for long-term success. Mm. And having read the book, I can say they are. Uh, (laughs) You definitely deliver on that. What books have inspired your work and career? Uh, There are a few that I want to mention. Uh, One of the first, I guess, as a writer that uh, inspired me from very early days was Strunk and White. They have a little tiny book called The Elements of Style. Yes, I had it as an English major. It's a fabulous book. And the main message I got from there that has stuck with me over the last 30 years is omit needless words. (laughs) Kill your darlings. (laughs) Kill your darlings. Exactly. So that was one. Other books that have really influenced me. One is Peter Drucker's book, The Effect of Executives. Yes. Executive. And, Classic. you know, if you can, he wrote that in the 50s. So as a woman, I have to get past the fact that it's always he, he, he. But <laughs> but it's it's so prescient. You know, it's funny when you read a book like that from 50, 60 years yeah. ago, and you just think, holy cow. Yeah, he got it. And, yeah. and one of the things that really struck me from that was he said, focus on your employees' strengths. Don't waste your time trying to fix their weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Focus on their strengths. Mm-hmm. And then there were two others that I want to mention. One is, that are a little more recent. One is the Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande, who talks in there about the power of simple, well-thought-out processes that are documented through a checklist. It's a fascinating book. And, and if you haven't read that one, I really recommend it. I think you'd I've, really I've start. I've heard about it one other place and it's it's like it's getting closer, uh, it's getting center and center of my radar screen. <laughs> okay, it's it's really great. And then the other one that really inspired me as I was writing People Shock was a book called Maverick, the success story behind the world's most unusual workplace by Ricardo Semler, who is a fascinating guy. It's a company out of Brazil. And back in the 1970s, he was a young guy, just graduated from university. His father had a manufacturing company. I think they were in shipbuilding or something. And his father wanted him to come into the family business. Well, he was a bit of a hippie, Ricardo, the son, and said, well, I don't like the way you run things, so I don't want to work there. And Typical the father, kid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the father said, fine, you think you can do so much better? I'm going to sign the company over to you. It's yours. Take it. You there. Shall- <laughs> And uh, so he went in, he, in the first week, fired about half the people his father had hired, um, the executives, and he set up a truly 100% completely non-hierarchical democratic workplace. And this company has thrived. They have been profitable every year in a country that's gone through, they're based in Brazil, they've gone through all kinds of ups and downs. It's grown. It's been absolutely amazing what they were able to do. Yeah. And I found that very inspirational to realize that even in a large company, 
some of this stuff can really, really work. I had not heard of that company or that story until I, I read about it in your book. And, you know, I know this sounds crazy, but I thought that would be such an interesting movie. Yeah, absolutely it would. I, Let's do it. Let's okay. make a movie. <laughs> yeah, what a great movie that would be. That would be so interesting. Are there any like new or upcoming books that you're looking forward to reading? There are a couple that I want to mention. One is I actually, on my podcast, just Dave, interviewed David Burkus, who has written the book called Under New Management. And I don't know if you've had him on your show yet. but no. And I suppose it's not technically a marketing book. It's really more of an HR book. He's focusing on what are the workplace practices that we need to change for the modern era. Mm. And there's a lot of overlap between what I've said in my book uh, and what he said on the Frank Reactions podcast and, and in his book, that we need to really rethink a lot of the ways we manage people because they were set up for the industrial era, not for the information era. Yeah. And so it that that is one book I, I think is a really good one. Another one that I'm curious about, and I don't know much about it, but it intrigues me, is called Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions by Brian Christensen and Tom Griffiths. Haven't read it yet, but it sounds really intriguing because part of what got me going on people shock and what interested me about it is realizing that increasingly of course things that we always thought had to be done by humans are being done by robots very effectively or by algorithms so even even professional services like medicine and law there's an expectation that by 2020 a third of what's currently done by doctors and lawyers will be done by machines mm. and it'll be done better wow and so there's, it's a very interesting field in my mind is what is the appropriate role for the computers and what is the appropriate role for the humans as we go forward? Yeah. And I think my, my hunch is that it's not like it's going to eliminate humans. It's going to be make better use of the humans. Absolutely. My doctor is very, very diligent and he, the poor guy spends every night reading and trying to keep up with the literature. There is no way that he can. It is impossible. But if he can work with a, an intelligent computer system beside him so that he can dictate in, okay, here's the patient, here's her symptoms, you've already got her background in there because I've been seeing him for a while, given these symptoms, this is most likely what's going on. The computer with its algorithms and the huge database that it has access to is going to be able to do a better job most of the time than a doctor can. Yeah, you know, I'm always so uh, impressed by my doctor by, you know, internal medicine guy, but how much he has to know about just drug interactions. Yep. And they don't always get it right. Well, and it keeps and, changing. <laughs> and it does keep changing. It's impossible to keep up. Yeah. yeah. But because of computer algorithms now and this increasing open data, computers will sometimes diagnose something. There are a couple of cases I've read about where there was somebody who had some very weird condition and it turned out there was a doctor at a hospital in Germany who had just figured out what this was. Hadn't made it into the literature yet, but I don't know, he had given a presentation at a conference or something. And because of that, they were able to diagnose her. Otherwise, she would have died. Mm, mm, that's great. And I think it's, I've heard about it in radiology as well, where mm -hmm. the automation of certain uh, images, a reading of a certain images can, can assist. So Absolutely. Tema, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Well, uh, there are a couple of things they can do. If they go right now to peopleshock.com, they can find out more about the book and download the introduction and first chapter free. 
And they will also get on the People Shock Insiders list where I will give them extra materials and they'll be the first to know when Amazon finally does have it for sale. <laughs> <laughs> and like uh, where you might be speaking and things like that? Could add that stuff on there, actually. It's a really good point. I will be speaking. I'm at- here to help. <laughs> Thank you. I will be speaking at Toronto at the Etail Canada conference the week of the 15th, 16th of May. That'll and, be right about when this comes out. Oh, perfect. Perfect. We're, we're trying and to sync it up for your book launch. I know. And I'm hoping that will actually be my book <laughs> launch. So, but other than that, if they want to find out more about me and just learn more about these issues on an ongoing basis, the Frank Reactions website and podcast. So frankreactions.com. And if you go there, just put forward slash show and you'll get the podcast episodes or just download it on, you know, iTunes or whatever podcast thing you use. It's on Google and, Play now too. Yay. <laughs> and they can also, of course, reach me anytime. Uh, it's just Tema, T-E, Amazon Marketing A at frankreactions.com or on Twitter, just at Tema Frank, or on LinkedIn. Okay, and we're going to have some pretty long show notes here, but they're all going to be at marketingbookpodcast.com, so you can get that contact information and also the links to all those other books, some of which I'm excited to dig into uh, (laughs) myself. So the name of the book is People Shock, The Path to Profits When Customers Rule. The author is Tema Frank. Tema, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. It was great to be here. And that closes the book on episode 70 of the Marketing Book Podcast. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for show notes, free resources, and marketing guides. And while there, make sure to sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. You know what I love? I love to hear from listeners like you. You! I really do. Is there a book you recommend for the show? Let me hear about it. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Or heck, just tweet me up using hashtag marketingbook. And please join us next time as we talk with Jeb Blunt about his book, Fanatical Prospecting, the ultimate guide to opening sales conversations and filling the pipeline by leveraging social selling, telephone, email, text, and cold calling. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.